Hello everyone, I'm Tyler Cressman. Welcome to the Cressman Conversation. For those of you watching on YouTube, you might notice we have changed locations for filming this week. One of a different backdrop, moved out of the guest room into the reading area. I don't know if the acoustics are going to be as good. We're going to play around with it and see what we can do. I might have to change this setup around a little bit, but we'll figure it out. Uh, I like the books. It makes me look well-informed. At least we can pretend. Uh, anyway, we're going to move straight into the topic this week. This week, we're going to talk about a issue that is local to me, and then we're going to use that. Uh, excuse me. We're going to use that to make a broader topic about a bigger issue. So this week in St. Louis, which is where I'm from, Kim Gardner, who is the city prosecutor, was in the news. She was excluded from a big anti-crime summit by the mayor and the, I believe, the police chief, as well as some other people who were there. And there was a big upset. People were upset about this that the city prosecutor wasn't included in this crime summit. And I, there's a very good reason why. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about Kim Gardner. Again, local issue, but we're going to use this to make a broader point. She was elected in 2016. Uh, she campaigned as a reformer. And her promise was, quote, to reduce jail populations, expand diversion programs, demand more thorough police investigations, and reduce crime before it starts, end quote. She has kept at least that first campaign promise. Uh, jail populations in St. Louis are down 23% since 2016, which on its face seems like a good thing. If you were to say that we've decreased the prison population, that's great. Sounds, sounds excellent. Uh, sounds like a healthy society. Well, we'll see about that. So Gardner's office says his diversion programs have helped reduce crime and the city jail population. She said she's proud of holding the police to account, prosecuting bad cops, and scrutinizing evidence presented by the police. So all this is great. Uh, prison populations are down, uh, except that her second claim that also crime rates are down is just patently false, not true whatsoever. Homicides are up 16% this year so far, including uh, something that received national attention, the murder of 17 children so far this year. Robberies are up 3%. Shootings are up 6%. The crime rate in St. Louis City is getting worse as the jail population decreases. Now, why is that? Well, Gardner herself said her office declined charges in 60% of the 5,000 cases the police have brought to her office between January and June of this year. So she has declined to prosecute over half of the cases the police have made arrest on. The amount of felony cases dismissed by her office has doubled from 14% in 2015 before she took office to 31% now. So she is declining or dismissing 31% of felony cases police make arrest on before they even go to trial. So it's easy. It's easy to make your crime rates, quote unquote, go down, even though they aren't. But it's easy to say that they're going down when you just choose not to prosecute crime. Uh, the city might be spiraling downward, but luckily our jails are empty so isn't that nice and this is going to bring us out to the larger point this small little thing i just wanted to address right there at the beginning st louis is a microcosm for the country and this office is sort of a poster boy for the activist wave that started to rise after 2014. there are a lot of people like kim gardner out there who believe that mass incarceration is a gigantic problem in the u.s Okay, it's a complex issue, one we should definitely have a conversation about, 
But my question is always a simple one for those who say mass incarceration is a giant problem. Who would you like to let out of prison? That is a simple question and one that seemingly should be easy to answer. If it, if it is a giant problem, who do we let out of prison? There are currently 2.2 million people in prison in the United States. We have a disproportional amount of prisoners compared to our population versus the world population and the amount of people we hold in prison. We have a large prison population in the United States. This is, that's not disputable. Uh, most people who are on the side that say we have a prison population problem, that's some nice alliteration there, uh, would say that the obvious people we need to let out are your nonviolent drug offenders. There is no reason a guy walking down the street with a dime bag of marijuana should be arrested by the police and then sent to prison. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. That guy should not go to jail. That guy shouldn't be in prison. And, and thankfully, he isn't. He's not part of our 2.2 million prison population. That is a falsity. Um, some people might throw out misleading statements, such as 50% of the people in jail are there for nonviolent drug offenses. That seems to be a favorite that people use. It, it is true. It is true that 50% of federal prisoners are in prison for drug crimes. However, the federal prison accounts for 10% of all prisoners in the United States, which means that nonviolent drug offenders are less than 5%. Also, at the federal level, most offenders who have pled down to lesser drug crimes are not convicted for possession. They were convicted of trafficking or some other larger crime and then pled it down to avoid a trial. So that it's not, this isn't the guy walking down the street carrying some drugs who gets harassed and arrested and his life ruined by the prison system. These are, these are bad people who traffic drugs, which is a totally different story, who then plead it down. And it accounts for almost no percentage of the prison population whatsoever. Mo most people are held in state prisons. Of the prisoners held in state prisons, the majority are in for assault, robbery, sexual assault, murder, manslaughter. The second largest category of state prisons are property crimes, fraud, burglary, grand theft auto, and other prime crimes against property. Drug crimes in state prisons is only the third largest category, but drug possession cases account for only a small portion of that, roughly 45,000. So 45,000 drug possession cases are held in state prisons out of a 1.3 million population. Again, not a giant number of people. So the question is a simple one, but it is one that just needs an answer. If we have a giant prison population problem, again, what alliteration, who should we let out? Because the people who you point to, the nonviolent drug offenders, are not represented in a large amount in prison. So, we're, okay, so that's not going to fix the problem. People in there for no reason account for almost 0% of the prison population. If we had a rash, just a gigantic problem of innocent, law-abiding citizens minding their own business who just wind up in prison, why is it that the Urban Institute found that within three years, seven out of ten people released from prison wind up rearrested, and half of them wind up back in prison? 
within three years, 50% wind up back in prison. Those people don't sound that innocent if they wind up back in jail. It's not, again, this is not the school teacher whose life is ruined because he's walking down the street and he's arrested for some unknown reason. These are people who are criminals and they wind up going back to jail because when they get out, they're still criminals. If everyone in the prison is, every single prisoner is an injustice against our society, explain that recidivism rate. How do you account for that? Um, some other people argue that, okay, it's not the nonviolent drug offenders. It's not, it's not just them that's the problem with our prison system, our criminal justice system. Some people say that it is actually private prisons. Private prisons are responsible for this because the incentive motive behind for-profit prisons is that they just want to keep people in jail because that's how they make money. Okay, yeah. There's a conversation to be had about the role of private prisons in our criminal justice system. The problem again becomes private prisons account for about 8% of prisoners. Not a huge number compared to the rest of society. So you say 8% of prisoners and the private prisons do not wield that much power. Uh, it is true, private prisons have lobbied against things like recreational marijuana, which is itself a little slimy, like the idea that they're going to lobby against things to keep things illegal so they can keep making money. There is, that is a bit slimy. But again, they don't force people to commit crimes, nor do they get to choose who goes to their prison. They don't get to pick the people who are criminals and then just pluck them out of society and put them in the prison. The fact is, if you go to a private prison, it's because you committed a crime and you were convicted. And so, again, that's, okay, let's say we get rid of private prisons. Those 8% of the prison population are just not going to go be released back into society. They just go to a state-run prison. That's not going to solve the mass incarceration problem. Uh, other people might say that it's a racist system, that that's the problem. We have a mass incarceration system due to residual racism in our criminal justice system. Okay, well, let's talk about that because there is a, this is probably the most interesting conversation to have at least because the unfortunate fact is that blacks are overrepresented in prison compared to their population in society in general. The question always becomes, where is the racism? Because I, I detest racism. I hate bigotry, I hate racism with every fiber of my being. And so if somebody points to a racist person or law or institution, if you can point that out to me, I am right there with you. We need to fight that thing as best we can because I don't want any piece of it in our society. The problem becomes the common mistake that people make is when you see a disparity and then you just say, therefore, racism. So blacks are overrepresented in prison compared to their population in society. Therefore, racism is a terrible argument. Um, uh, you probably can't see. I don't think the books show up very well on the camera. There's a book over there called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. This is basically that entire book. The, 
there's a discrepancy, therefore racism, without ever actually showing the racism. It is a, it is a big issue. So let's talk about that and say, okay, why is it that blacks are overrepresented in prison? Um, and there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of reasons why that could be. The, it's obviously complex as to why people commit crime. But let's take an obvious example. We say black males account for 6% of the United States population and yet are responsible for 52% of the homicides most commonly against other young black males. Okay, so you have 6% of the population commits 52% of the homicides. There is obviously going to be a disproportional amount of young black males arrested for homicide. And at what point is that reflective of the uh, people who commit crime and at what point is it racist? Because that is an important question. Let's say that the prison population is 35% black. Okay, then you say, well, it's 35% black, they account for 6% of our black males, excuse me, account for 6% of the population. So therefore they're overrepresented, therefore racism. And you say, well, but yeah, but they commit 52% of the homicides. So according to the crime statistics, they're actually underrepresented uh, in prison. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do, or where do you draw the line uh, by uh, the racist standard? Like, where is it racist? At what number is it racist? Oh, my number was very close, by the way. It was 37% of the prison population is made up of black males. So that was, that was my fault. I was trying to check my number real quick. And so you say, okay, so 37% of the prison population is black males. They represent 6% of the general population, so therefore racism. And then you point to things like, well, but they commit crime at a disproportionate level. Again, just to be clear here, so that no one can misconstrue what I'm saying, this obviously has nothing to do with the fact that they're black. They don't commit crimes because they're black, but they do, that population does commit crimes at a different rate. I feel like this is a very important distinction to draw so that nobody can say that this is uh, any sort of, there's no racist underpinnings to making this point. And so you say, okay, at what point does that number become racist? If black males were arrested at 20%, is that racist? Because they're 6% of the population. Again, knowing that, just using homicide as an example, they account for a larger percentage than they are represented in society. Uh, and, 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 and you can make the actual, you can actually do this in reverse too, just to avoid any sort of awkwardness when talking about this. Where you say white males, for example, uh, account for, I believe it was 94% of arrests due to methamphetamine. So there's not a reasonable person alive who would say that white males are the victim of racism in the system, even though they are drastically overrepresented in methamphetamine arrests. So there's not a real person who would ever make that point. And it doesn't make any sense to say the system is racist against whites. Look at how they're overrepresented. The truth is, is that whites just use meth more and therefore are arrested at a higher rate. Now, the problem becomes it's hard to do this in every category of every crime and break it down and figure out what number is justified and what isn't. So the goal is, should not be 
to disprove racism in the system, which is what people expect you to do. And most people will just say racism and then put the onus on you to disprove that it's racist. When in reality, that's uh, argumentum ad silencio, the argument to silence the absence of evidence does not prove a point. It's a, actually a bad logical fallacy to make. And so you say, okay, I don't have to disprove a negative. You have to prove a positive. And that's all, that's all people like myself ask. I prove, show me any evidence of any sort of impropriety. I'm right there with you. We need to get rid of it 100%. People like Kim Gardner say they want to hold police accountable. I want to hold police accountable. Absolutely. But you have to show me something. You can't just say this shooting was racially motivated or this was a bad shooting because, you know, whatever. I want to see something. I want to see something. Um, this always becomes a problem in, when talking about criminal justice reform because part of it also is just talking about policing in general. And the idea, again, this is the same thing people do when they're talking about the police and just say racism. And I always say, no, don't just say racism. Show me racism. And let's weed it out together. Let's fight it together. So anyway, those, those tend to be the big arguments that people have. They say, you know, the criminal justice system is racist. Private prisons are a problem. They say, um, you know, that basically there's a bunch of young innocent people who didn't do anything who are in prison none of, none of this stuff is true by my estimation and according to the numbers i just cited i i'm a numbers person i like to see numbers as you notice every one of my arguments had some sort of fact from some institution to back it up i didn't i don't just make claims about these things and that's what i ask of other people don't make claims tell me where the problem is and i will help you fight it but you have to have some Thing other than your opinion to back it up. I don't care about your opinion. I want to know your opinion backed by facts. So is this, is the criminal justice system racist? No. If there's if there are vestiges of racism found within the system, let's fight them together. Is the private prison population out of control? Are private prisons keeping people like cattle? No. Do we have a problem? as Kim Gardner and many believe her, like her, uh, that the police are arresting people on trumped up charges and sending them to jail for no reason. No, but when you decline to, when you believe this and where it logically leads, is it leads you to believe every person either accused, arrested, or convicted of a crime is actually the victim of some sort of systemic injustice within the system. What it leads you to do is side with criminals. Because the unfortunate fact is that majority of people, who, when they talk about criminal justice reform, they want to talk about it in the context of the black community. And because, again, our prison population is overrepresented. Or the, our blacks are overrepresented in our prison population. And there's a lot that needs to be discussed about that. But the, also, the other fact of the matter is, is that the unfortunate victims of crime tend to be lower income black people in the country. Our urban centers tend to be the hotbeds of crime and the lower income areas of the urban centers tend to be the worst and unfortunately those tend to be heavily populated by black Americans. And so you say, okay, 
the people in the black community, the one thing that we need to do, if we want to make the system work better for everyone involved, criminal justice, if we want to make it better, what we should be trying to do is build a relationship between our police officers and the black community. What we should not be doing is demonizing the police as the modern-day Ku Klux Klan who's out there to target blacks and destroy their lives. This is unhelpful. The black communities that are ravaged by crime, north where I live, North St. Louis, which is heavily black and heavily crime-ridden, those areas need a more police presence. Those areas need, people there need to feel safe. And you don't feel safe by having a standoff with the police. The police are there to help. Well, despite what many people believe, the police are there to help the community. And the people who embrace that have learned that the only way to stop crime is with a, a good police presence and a healthy relationship with the community. So if you believe that the police are the enemy, the enemy is the criminals. The criminals in your community are the enemy. The criminals in all of our community. I have no sympathy for people who commit crime and then get arrested. I'm sorry I don't. We've all had struggles. Everyone lives a tough life in their own way. You don't get my sympathy when you victimize other people. And so this idea that by fighting the police, we're somehow strengthening the black community has just been proven a falsity. The Ferguson effect in St. Louis especially is palpable. The idea that crime is getting better following a more contentious relationship with the police department is just not true whatsoever. Nothing has gotten better in the aftermath of Ferguson by demonizing the police in St. Louis. And this is, this is the first step in fixing our criminal justice system, is trying to get everyone on the same page and realize that the people that we need to demonize are the people who victimize their neighbors. If we wave them, I'd like to do this experiment, this little thought experiment, where if you had a magic wand, got the magic wand, and you wave it around, and tomorrow we made all the racism, every ounce, every little bit, we just wiped it off the face of every police department in the country. You say every, every racist officer who managed to sneak by our mental health checks, every racist you know, judge with a little bit of prejudice, and we just made it all disappear tomorrow. What changes in the black community tomorrow? And the answer is almost nothing. It doesn't get better in the black community if we make racism disappear from the police department. Again, I don't think racism is alive and well in police departments. Um, speaking as a, an, an insider in the white community, I know that white people don't just sit around and have racist conversations when minorities aren't present. It's just not something that happens. Again, this is not to say that racism doesn't exist, obviously, but that most white people don't like racism. And in the police department, it's the same way because police, policemen and women are just people. They just go to work, they do their job, they go home. 
They interact with society like everyone else. And so racism, if we made it disappear from all police departments, all the little personal prejudices that people might have, nothing changes in the black community because the problem in the black community tends to be criminality. Uh, and there are obviously a lot of factors that go into play and in why that is the case. But that is the first step in our criminal justice reform. We need to get a handle on crime in the cities. That is, that's where the problem lies. It's not in racism in our laws. It's not in private prisons. It's not in any of that. That is the first step we need to have. It, are there things we should change in the criminal justice system? Absolutely. There are little things that we should do that would make things a little bit better. We, like We should have a serious conversation about the cash bail system. Is it right for people who've never been convicted of a crime to stay in jail for low-level offenses. You don't pay, whatever the case may be, your parking tickets. Uh, you have $1,000 in parking tickets because you can't figure out how to park. So you have $1,000 in parking tickets, you, can't, you get arrested. You can't make bail. You sit in jail for months until you get a trial. And then you know, you're either convicted or let off. That's a problem. We should probably address that people sitting in jail for low-level crimes. Now, you, if you can't make bail and you're in jail for murder, yeah, you get to stay in jail. But if you, you're, I don't know, I can't think of a good example. You throw a brick through a store window because you're, you know, an idiot. Uh, okay, do you stay in jail for that? <sighs> you know, because you can't make bail? I don't know. It's a good question. But it's a conversation we should have, for sure. So that's one. That's, that's something we could all address and maybe everyone could get on the same page about. I don't believe municipalities that cannot fund themselves through their tax base should fund their government through fines and tickets. That's something we should address. Should, if your city cannot support itself through its tax system, your city probably shouldn't exist. And St. Louis is a big problem where we have an incredibly fragmented government in the county. I don't know exactly how many municipalities are, there are in St. Louis as a whole, but I believe it's something like 50. That Some of them are very tiny, and some of them fund themselves almost exclusively by fining people for nonsense. And this is a big problem all over the place. You know, um, oh, what was it? There was, a, I read an article about this a long time ago, where there are courts that just basically weed hundreds of people through a day for little low-level fines, $20, $50, $100, and they just, throughout the entire day, and that's how, that's how the city funds itself. It's just through nonsensical fines. So that, that's something we should definitely have. If, you, if you're giving quotas to your police officers because you have a budget, that's not okay. Uh, you know, quotas for police officers in general to make sure they're doing their job, eh, maybe debatable, but maybe but quotas to fill budgetary needs absolutely not that's ridiculous so yeah those are those are some things we can we should absolutely have conversations about uh manda ooh, mandatory minimums that's another one that that was probably a bad idea in the 90s people point to the way that we handled crime as a again a, a lot of people are knocking joe biden for this actually where the crime, the 1990s crime bill that he passed, they say it was racist because it 
it disproportionately affected young blacks in the inner city. And you say, well, people tend to forget. I wasn't even, I was a child in the early 90s. So I don't know this from experience, but it's very obvious looking back, if you look at the problem that we were facing in the 90s, it was kind of grave. The 90s saw a dramatic spike in crime that needed to be accounted for. And the, the crime bill itself had the support of the black community because what they saw was their communities being ravaged by things like crack cocaine and gang violence. And so the crime bill, looking back, you say, oh, well, look, it, it disproportionately affected black youth in the inner cities. Well, yeah, and unfortunately, so did crime at the time. It's just one of those things where, again, people say that's incredibly racist. And in reality, at the time, it was heavily supported in the black community. So, but, uh, but part of that that came along with that is ma- things like mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimums should probably go. You should leave. You should trust our judiciary to make reasoned and rational decisions about things. If you get the appointment of a judge, you should probably have some leeway in your court to run things how you how you think is okay. I recently saw a video. This is a little bit off topic, but I recently saw a video of a judge. There was an elderly man, um, something six, you know, seventies maybe early seventies. And he was caught speeding, and he said he was taking his 94-year-old dad to the doctor when he was caught speeding, and he couldn't pay the ticket. And the judge was like, "You still take care of your 94-year-old father? What a, what a, you know, paragon of virtue you are!" And it was actually a very touching video. But it, again, that is a judge who gets it. He says, "You know, this man—he's obviously not out here doing anything terrible in life." You give the judge some leeway to hear the story, to make a decision based on what should amount to human common sense, and especially in someone in a position of authority like a judge in a courtroom. So mandatory minimums, they should go. Those are things in our legal system that we can absolutely do, or at least have a conversation about. But some of the things, the problem is the focus of people is on the wrong topics. Don't side with criminals because you think that a high prison population is inherently bad. But crime is bad. And uh, one of the unfortunate facts of the United States is that we have a disproportionate amount of crime in the United States compared to other countries. Again, there might be a lot of underlining reasons why that is, underlying reasons why that is, but the fact that's the fact on the ground. So our disproportionate prison population is also just representative of a disproportionate amount of crime that occurs in the United States. Make these changes, let's shrink the prison population if we can but don't do it artificially don't do it like kim gardner she is by the way just for those who are unfamiliar with st louis politics in general uh, she is abjectly terrible at her job she is a terrible prosecutor and has done some questionable things i was kind of sad that the grand jury didn't just oust her recently she's not not good at her job and uh has done a lot of really questionable and and shady things but anyway i think actually that's just where we're going to leave it this was was kind of a brief one just an overview of some of the topics that i would like i might get more in depth to we might do a whole one it'd be an interesting conversation to have at least we might do a whole one on sort of race and disparity in the united states which i think would be an interesting topic to have a conversation with but we're going to leave that one there i did have one question 
um, from the last week I want to address. We actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of two questions, and it's an interesting one. I'm gonna I'm gonna read both of them real quick. One was, what should we do about people who have paid into Medicare their whole life? Is the underlying question here being, um, if you're talking about abolishing it. And the other one was, why don't we abolish Social Security altogether? So these these questions kind of go hand in hand. So what do we do with people who have paid into things like Medicare and Social Security all their lives? If I'm out here saying we should not have those programs. Well, this is a, an incredibly good question. And my opinion is that, unfortunately, we have made a commitment to people who have paid in. So the people who have paid in their whole lives, those people need to be compensated. The same can be said of people who have paid in for some of their lives or, you know, or just a decade of their lives. We should be compensating people, but we should compensate them accordingly. So what you do is you figure out how much people have paid in, not individually necessarily, but you figure out a number. So you say, like, let's say we stop the system tomorrow. Well, everyone who's on it gets indefinitely. You get it like it never went away. Because guess what? You have paid in your whole life. You deserve it. Because you, the government has been taking your money the whole life, your whole life with this promise in hand. And we shouldn't go back on our promises. But let's say you've paid in 10 years. Well, maybe the government buys you out. Which I think would be an appropriate one. Or maybe in the future you opt out. Which I think would be a great way to do it. Now, if, if we had an opt out system, that system collapses on itself in a day. Because the fact is that... Social Security, Medicare, these are Ponzi schemes, right? So the, one of the things that was great and why they worked so well for a long time is because when they were started, people had large families and the, and the, the population kept growing. You, know, you had the, the baby boomers who were called that because there were a ton of them. And then now birth rates start falling and all of a sudden your pyramid scheme doesn't work when it turns into a diamond, when it goes out and then goes like this. We can't fund these people in the middle here. And that's what's happening now. And so you either got to raise taxes on people, raise the, the caps in which you tax people, or get rid of the system altogether, or it just falls apart. And so that, uh, what we should do is either have a buyout and opt out, and then allow the system to shrivel and die on its own while people are funded. But where they get funding from, it might have to come from the discretionary budget that the United States uses. You know, the United States has discretionary spending, which it spends kind of disproportionately on the military. It has uh, obligations that it is required to fill every year, and then it has discretionary spending. You might have to take some of that discretionary money, uh, money and cut something else out of the budget and fund people until that system just disappears because all the people who have stayed in get paid off at the end or, or die, um, which is the other way that goes. And the same with Social Security. I, I just think we should abolish it. I don't, I don't want to pay into Social Security. I'm not relying on Social Security. Social Security is not going to be around when I'm, well, or it's going to be, I'm going to retire at 80. You can retire at 80 and get your Social Security money. Okay, yeah, that'll be fun. Uh, no, so I would, I would like to opt out. I'd rather take that money and put it in my investment accounts, um, of which I have many. That's right. I'd rather take it and do that than rely on the government to take care of me when I'm old. I think that's a much better plan. I think if everyone took the money that they pay in to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, 
and they took it and they put it in a 457 or just a neutral fund of some kind, you would be much better off. Now, do I expect people to do that? No. I don't expect people to be responsible with their money. But also, what they do with it is not my business. It's not my business at all. So that's my whole opinion. Um, the book of the week this week, I'm actually going to recommend. I, didn't, I was trying to find a good one on criminal justice reform that I really liked. I mentioned The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander earlier. That book is pretty informative. It's good. Uh, I didn't agree with a lot of it. But one of the things that it does, which is a mistake, is you'll find that it talks a lot about the distribution of prison population by race. But what it doesn't do is talk about the distribution of crimes by race very much. Because, uh, again, it runs into that awkward problem of when does the number get racist, which is what we talked on earlier. So it's, it's a pretty decent one. I don't know if I'd recommend it to everyone. It's not the best book. So and then instead, this week, I'm going to recommend one of my all-time favorite books. Discrimination and Disparity by Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell, if you don't know who that is, you should educate yourself on him. He is amazing. He is one of, he is one of the smartest people to have existed in the last hundred years. And you should definitely go listen to him talk, read his books, because he's awesome. So this week's book is Discrimination and Disparity by Thomas Sowell. S-O-W-E-L-L, Sowell. It's awesome. Go, give, go check it out. I think that is where we're going to leave it this week, guys. This was a quick one. Uh, kind of, actually. Wow, as I look at it now, it's 37 minutes, so I guess it's not that quick. That's where we're going to leave it. Don't forget, for everyone on YouTube, to subscribe, like, leave me some comments if you have any questions that you would like to be addressed, anything like that. Uh, same can be said on the Apple Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave me a review if you have time. That really helps with Apple elevating your podcast to get more views. And that's it for the week. Guys, I'm Tyler Cressman. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you all next Monday.